Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I don't really know how else to start today's episode. I've been struggling to come up with something to say um, about this all week because it's just been a really tough time. The North Bay fires have impacted all of us in in some capacity. And definitely for the people who are in the middle of this tragedy, those who have lost loved ones or homes, you know, people who have been evacuated, first responders, volunteers, I mean, everybody. I hope that you are okay. And I hope that we will get through this as a community. I know that we will. Um, It will take time, but we will get through this. I work in the KQED newsroom, and many of the stories pouring in from the wildfires are harrowing. Take a listen. This is the place, the only place in the world that I felt safe. And with all the chaos going on around the world, I knew that I can come home and I would be safe in my little bubble with my my dogs and my boyfriend. And I'll miss waking up in the morning and opening the shutters and having the sun shine through and, and watering all my plants. I had so many plants. But there are also stories of resilience. We have about 10 faculty members that have lost their homes, including one of my principals. And every and about half my staff is displaced all over. But we are still coming together for the kids and our staff to kind of figure out what, what we as a unit can do together. I'm Olivia Allen-Price. This is the Bay Curious Podcast. Last week on social media, we asked for your questions about wildfires. And today, we'll answer three of them. Stick around. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. All right, so let's get started. Our first question comes from listener Aaron Johnson. I live in Redwood City, California. Um, I'm a stay-at-home dad. He wants to know... What does containment mean? 
Here to help us out is KQD science reporter Lindsay Hoshaw. Lindsay, thanks for being here. Sure, Olivia. So when there's a wildfire, we tend to track the progress that firefighters are making through these containment percentages that are reported out. What does it really mean when they say a fire is like 10 percent contained? Containment just means there's a barrier around the fire. If you have a fire that's 100 percent contained, that would mean there's a barrier around the entire perimeter of the fire. And those numbers seem to change a lot. Why do they change so often? They do change a lot, which can be really confusing. They change because while firefighters are working on putting a barrier around the fire, the size of the fire can change. And so they might have a fire that's 50% contained, but then it grows. And so it's no longer 50% contained. It's maybe only 20% contained now. Tell me a little bit about the types of barriers that firefighters put in. Right. So there's two types of barriers. There's natural and man-made. Natural could be like a lake or a canyon. In that case, the firefighters don't really have to do anything. But for a man-made barrier, there are three different types. There is a hand line, a dozer line, and a hose lay. And a dozer line and a hand line are, are pretty similar. It's basically creating a dirt path. But the way you're doing it is different. With a dozer line, you would use a bulldozer. In areas that are harder to reach, you might do a hand line, which is firefighters going in with shovels and picks to create a dirt path. And a hose lay is firefighters standing in a line carrying a hose and spraying down the area on the perimeter of the fire as they walk along. So they just super saturate that area with water. Yes, exactly. And what's important to keep in mind is that when the firefighters are working on containment, their main goal is just to create this barrier around the outside of the fire. Once they've created this barrier and it's 100% contained, then they move on to another step called control. And working on controlling the fire means even though the fire is contained, it might still be active and burning inside the perimeter. And so then they are going to go in and they might do back burning. They'll burn any unburned vegetation. They'll locate any spot fires that might be there too. Lindsay Hoshaw, thank you so much for taking a quick break from the KQD Science Desk to talk with us today. Thanks, Olivia. turn to our next question. It comes from Martina Clark. I'm a Californian who is currently living in Brooklyn, supporting California from afar. She has a lot of family members that have been evacuated, and she asked me curious this question. My question is, how are fires named? Typically, it's the first fire crew on the scene who names the fire. And they're usually inspired by some nearby landmark, maybe a road, a mountain, a lake, or town, for example. Now, the Tubbs fire that destroyed parts of Santa Rosa started near Tubbs Lane, just north of Calistoga. Then there's the Atlas fire in Napa. That was named for a nearby mountain, Atlas Peak. You might also notice a lot of the fires include the word complex, like the Nuns Complex fire. That means there are two or more individual fires located in the same general area, and it's been assigned to one unified command. One thing to keep in mind, since January, there have been over 6,000 fires, and that's just in California, meaning there's a lot of fires that need to get named. Our last question is the one that's been on my mind all week, too. It comes from Tara McClinton, and she lives in American Canyon in Napa County. I volunteered at the American Canyon High School that served as an evacuation site. So I saw a lot of the people in distress. Tara wants to know what happens next. What happens if your house burns down? Does fire insurance pay to rebuild your home? What do you do in the meantime? 
Reporter Suki Lewis has been working to answer just that and brings us this story. Last Sunday night, Peter Hess noticed strong gusts of wind blowing outside his home in Berkeley. He felt uneasy and started checking online for fire news. He saw a tweet about a small fire on Tubbs Lane, west of his sister's home in Santa Rosa. I felt odd about calling my sister, partly because I have become known in the family as the person who worries too much about fire. The fire was still miles away, but his sister began packing just in case, and Peter started driving up 101. As he neared her exit, he heard an awful sound. Every five seconds, there was a loud kaboom, and I knew it was the explosion of a car's gas tank. And I I prayed that there was nobody in those cars. Peter's sister made it out, with just enough time to grab their father's ashes, her cat, and a painting. Pretty much everything else burned to the ground. Peter went to the motel to see her. She was in total shock, as was, as I was, um, just two years after being in total shock after the Valley Fire. So we hugged. We didn't really, we didn't really say much. That's right, the Valley Fire. The Hesses also lost their family home in the devastating wildfire that ripped through Lake County in 2015. At that time, Peter needed emotional support to get through the shock and loss, and he had trouble finding it. So he decided to create it himself. It's a Facebook group for fire survivors. Many are friends and neighbors from Lake County, but others are from Alberta, Canada, Oregon, Washington, and even Tennessee. When he posted about his sister's home in Santa Rosa, he got a flood of responses. They just have to say hugs, and I know they're there for me. I know they understand. Now he has a bunch of new members from Northern California who need just that understanding. Like a young mother of two from Santa Rosa. Lost every photograph, their baby blankets, their stuffed animals, their toys, their clothes. And she was just utterly bewildered about what to do. So Peter connected her with three grandmothers who'd been through this with their own families. We exist to help people put their emotional lives back together at the same time that other people are helping them with insurance and cleanup and finding architects and and relocation and so forth. Peter's friend, Rob Goodman, is one of those who wants to help people deal with those endless practical issues. When Rob lost his home in the Valley Fire, he tried to read his homeowner's insurance policy for the first time. You just don't read it. You don't think about it until after it happens, and then you have to deal with it. Now he has some advice for new survivors. If your home burned down, contact your insurance company right away. They'll pay for you to live somewhere else. Rent a post office box to handle your mail and prepare for a long rebuilding process. Here it is over two years, and we still don't have a home. And so insurance became our life, our story for the last two years and such. Rob had to fight his insurance company every step of the way, from the value of his burned home to the plans for rebuilding. I want to avoid anyone ever going through this. I will stand on the corner of 29 and 175 and offer any information, any help I can, because we were never given that opportunity. No one was there for us, not the county. No one would tell us, like, here's what's going to happen. Now, Rob is sharing the do's and don'ts of recovery with the many people who are starting down this road he's already traveled. That was reporter Suki Lewis. We spoke with the survivors of other wildfires to see what pieces of advice they have for those who are just beginning to put their lives back together. Frederick Hertz and Randolph Langenbach lost their home in the 1991 Oakland Hills fire. 
For them, knowing when to make a decision and when to delay was key. One of the things people get very wrapped up in after a disaster like this is wanting to make decisions and do the right thing. And oftentimes you don't have enough information yet to know what to do. Do you buy? Do you build? We, we went through the whole planning process of rebuilding, and we went back to the side of the house and sort of both fell apart. And immediately said, I don't want to live there. There's too much pain there. And within like an hour, decided, even though we had plans, we had permits, we had hired architects, we're dropping it. We're going to go buy a house somewhere else. Now, that decision was absolutely the right decision. Had you asked me the day before, I wouldn't have known that was my decision. Sometimes you just have to say, I can't decide this week. I'll decide next week. Carl Parker survived the Valley Fire in 2015. He says dealing with everything after a wildfire, it can feel like information overload. There was a period when I just felt like I was kind of losing my mind. I couldn't remember anything, was just incredibly distracted by every little thing. And I got some good advice uh, from someone who said, oh, uh, just get yourself a small notebook and keep it in your pocket and and write everything down. And um, I started doing that, and it was very, very helpful. Kyle Noble lives in Middletown and also lost her home in the Valley Fire. She found solace in the people around her. Keep active in your community. Be together as much as possible. Don't isolate yourself. And don't wait to get involved in volunteering. Allison Murphy was seven months pregnant when the Oakland Hills Fire took her home. Obviously, losing all of your possessions is painful, um, very painful. And it's a real pain a pain in the rear to uh, replace everything, um, for sure, and it will take time to replace it, but you will get through this for sure. And if you can, she says, find some bright spots to focus on. The day before my house caught on fire, I was going to stay home and clean my house and decided to go have fun instead. And it always gave me slight satisfaction that I didn't stay home cleaning my house all day before it burned. So choosing fun <laughs> may be the best choice sometimes. We'll be sharing more advice from survivors later this week at baycurious.org. Thanks to everyone who has shared their story and their wisdom. There are so many people to thank for today's episode. Our three question askers, Aaron Johnson, Tara McClinton, and Martina Clark, thank you so much. Also to reporters Lindsay Hoshaw, Jessica Placek, and Suki Lewis, plus countless others on the KQED News staff. And thanks to our technical director, Paul Lancor. Almost all of the songs in today's episode, including the one you're listening to right now, they're all by Gio Benedetti, an artist based in Petaluma. He created them as the fires burned and is donating all the proceeds from their sale to the Sonoma County Fire Disaster Relief Fund. We'll have a link to his work on our website. And finally, thank you, our listeners. You inspire us each week with your questions. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at KQED. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. 
Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.